May God's glory fall on us. Inevitable. That's the word that comes to mind this morning when I think about where we are in our journey through the book of James. It is an inevitable place where we have to arrive as we talk about what it means to follow after the one who walked out of the grave alive. Ever since Easter, we've been asking ourselves a question from the book of James, what kind of faith does it take? What is the real faith that allows us to follow after the one who walked out of the grave alive? And ultimately, that has to lead us to talk about relationships. Why? I mean, the one who walked out of the grave alive to live for eternity at the right hand of the Father, didn't he, during his earthly ministry, affirm on a number of occasions, teaching outright, that the very first commandment, the truth of God that's most relevant to our everyday lives is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second one is love your neighbor as yourself. Now, I don't know about you, but those are relational commandments, right? Talking about our relationship with God and our relationship with other people. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. And according to Matthew, when Jesus got to the end of his life, the very last thing he said to to his disciples was, this is the command I'm giving you. Go find people. Go make disciples of all nations. Go find people and reach them and serve them and, and care for them. And it's all about relationships. And so as we move our, through the book of James, it's inevitable as he's working with the church. And just as a bit of a reminder, James is the half-brother of Jesus. During Jesus' life, he was a skeptic. But once Jesus walked out of the grave alive and actually had an encounter with James, his half-brother, James's life was transformed. And he became a leader of the Jerusalem church. And when we look at the book of James, where we're going to turn in just a moment, we are actually looking at the very first New Testament letter that was written to the church. It's our first glimpse into how the church was struggling to live out the kind of faith that allows them to follow after the one who walked out of the grave alive. And as he goes through this journey, James is really in many ways equating real faith with living wisely. And he comes to this section in the middle of the book where he's talking about what does it mean to live with wisdom? What does it mean to take the faith that we have in Christ and all that it pours into us and live that out in such a way that it allows us to follow after Jesus and do and be who God wants us to be? I'd love for you to grab a Bible. If you didn't bring one, there's one right underneath your seat. There's one right in front of you, in the seat in front of you. The text there is the Holman Christian Standard Bible. I'm going to be reading out of the same today. Our text is James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 through 12 together today. Um, If if you don't know where James is, just look for a page 1,026. If you brought your own Bible, James can be a little hard to find because it's just five chapters, right? So it's pretty short, right? And um, 
And so what you need to do is, is get over to the back of your Bibles, like Revelation, and start working your way slowly forward. And somewhere in there between First and Second Peter and Hebrews, you're going to find the book of James stuck in there. And if you're joining us from Facebook Live and you're at home, you're just going to have to do the best you can, you know, and, uh, and we'll figure that out from there. So we've been walking through the book of James. And James has been talking to us about what does it mean to have real faith? The kind of faith that it really allows us to follow after Jesus. And we have arrived in a place in the middle of the book where he's talking about wisdom. And the text that we're going to deal with today actually begins or continues the conversation he started with us in verse 13 of chapter 3. And he asked this question, who among you is wise? Right? Show of hands. Who among us is wise, right? You know, <laughs> yeah, some of you are trying to get your spouse to put your hands up, right? You know, that kind of idea. It, it, you know, he's asking this question, and, and what he's really doing, is he's been teaching about how our faith is supposed to change the way we use our mouths. That, that our faith is supposed to change the impact of our words. And that's a struggle for us. And so he's, as he points back to that, that's the beginning of James chapter 3, he asks the question, so... If you struggle with that, you have to ask yourself the question, are you really wise or not? And there's two different types of wisdom that's available, the world's wisdom or God's wisdom. But as he continues to work that out and he thinks about this dynamic, he, he's hearing the echoes of Jesus in his ears saying, you've got to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. You've got to love your neighbor as yourself. And it draws him to focus in on the nature of the relationships that are going on in the church, and it's not a pretty picture. So here's what I want to do. I want to read James 1 through, verses 1 through 12 of chapter 4 today. I want to walk back through and try to, try to sort it out for us a little bit because this is really dense stuff, right? You could park and look at a lot of different topics in here, and we could do a whole series that would take us through the end of the summer just on these verses. So when we get to the end of that, I want to kind of back up and throw what we've learned into a blender and make it just a little bit more digestible for us so that we walk out of here with some things of saying, how is God supposed to matter to my life tomorrow in the area of relationships? So just follow along as I read this for you, and then we'll back up and go through the text. He starts out right up front and says, what is the source of wars and fights among you? Some of your translations might have the word quarrels and those kinds of things and arguments. He's actually using military language here, so it's very strong stuff. And he's saying, you know, he's looking at the church and he's saying, you guys are not a harmonious body before Christ. You guys are, are at war with one another. So what is the source of those wars? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire, and you don't have. You murder, ooh, and covet, and you cannot obtain. You fight, and you war. You don't have, because you don't ask. And you ask, and you don't receive, because you ask with wrong motives, so that you can spend it on your own evil desires. Adulteresses, yeet, yikes. Don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. 
Or do you think it's without reason, the scripture says, that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously? Very difficult passage to kind of get our minds to, to interpret because we don't know if the word spirit there should have a capital S as in the Holy Spirit or a little s as in our human spirit, our human nature, right? So, or do you not think it's without the reason the scripture says that our human spirit who lives within us yearns jealously or that the Holy Spirit who's in us because of our faith in Christ yearns jealously? We'll get back there. But, oh, I love the word but. <laughs> but. He gives greater grace. But he gives greater grace. Therefore, he said, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So what what, what does this humility stuff look there? It says, therefore, he says, this is what I tell you to do. Submit to God. But resist the devil, and he'll flee from you. Draw near to God. And he will, not might, he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, right? Purify your hearts, double-minded people. And this is my favorite one, right? Be miserable and mourn and weep. Isn't that a great command? What if we just ended there this morning? Just go home and be miserable. Right? Just go home and mourn. Just go home and cry your eyes out for the rest of your life. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter (laughs) must be changed to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. We're going to continue with the verses 11 and 12. It's really hard sometimes to outline letters. You don't know if this goes with a section afterwards. Stand by itself or belongs with what we're dealing with now. We're going to weave it in today. He says, don't criticize one another. I mean, obviously, that's a part of wars and quarrels, right? You know, it's criticism. Don't criticize one another, brothers. He who criticizes a brother or judges his brother criticizes the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You're not a doer of the law, but you're a judge. There's one lawgiver and judge who is able to save and to destroy. <laughs> and guess what? It's not you and it's not me, right? There's one lawgiver, lawgiver and judge who's able to save, but he's also able to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? So let's walk back through this, right? Because this is some pretty heavy stuff. He starts out with some really strong language here. He says, some of you guys have wars, that your life is just marked by an ongoing conflict with other people. Your life is just full of things. Others of you have regular battles in your life. Most wars are the summation of a series of battles, right? You know, you go, you make your way through the, the, through the, the eastern seaboard through Pennsylvania and Virginia and other areas, and you'll see that the Revolutionary War is really just a series of battles, right? He says, so, so he says, you, you, where do these wars and the individual battles that make them up, where do they come from? He says, they come from the unanswered cravings that you have in your own heart. What is the source of the wars and the cravings among, uh, the, among you? Don't they come from cravings that are a war within you? You desire and you don't have. 
right? You desire and you don't have. You murder and you covet and you cannot obtain. So you fight in your war. I mean, it's a pretty strong word, murder, right? Some, some, some comment is, well, we think this is a reference back to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount saying, you know, if you're angry at your brother, it's the same thing as murdering him. So he's kind of using the spirit of the law there. And that could be true, and that could be a part of it. Unfortunately, you can look at the history of the church, like you can look at the history of most every religion, and see that in the name of God, sometimes we kill people. Right? Which is a tragedy, Right? But sometimes in the name of God, we kill people. He said, so you murder and you covet. That means you want what you can't have. And so the whole image, we could break this down. But what he's saying, the primary problem that's going on, the source of your wars and battles is that inside, what the way you want your life to be is not the life that you have. And you're blaming everybody else and you're attacking them. You have this selfish, self-centered perspective saying, this is the way I want my life to be. And everybody else just has this wonderful capacity to mess that up, right? I mean, and so you're just mad at people. You know, and the words that he used here is the word that we get the word hedonism from, right? And, and, and when he's referring to these cravings. Now, we use hedonism to go very much in the, in the lustful, kind of the sexual kind of things that people can be hedonistic and they just want to indulge their sexual desires in this kind of unrestricted free way. That's, that's a part of it, but that's not all that James is talking about. James is saying, you, you, we, we just have this desire to say, I want life to be my way. Right? I want people to to think the way that I am. I want them to react the way I want. I want them to say it. It's just all about us. And when that isn't met, we go on the offensive. But guess what? The person on the other side of the equation, they're doing the same thing. And that's where the source and the quarrels come from. It's a very powerful word, right? So he says, guess what's going to happen when that happens? You're not you're even going to stop asking God for the stuff that you need. You don't have, you don't have the peace you want, you don't have the hope you want, you don't have the joy you have, you don't have the contentment, you don't have the, because you just don't even ask for it anymore. Because you're not thinking about God, you're thinking about yourself and the way you want things. And then when you do get around to asking God, this is what you ask God for. It says, God, give me the life I want. Instead of praying the prayer, God, use my life the way you want. Big difference between those two things. Right, we're saying, God, I'm here, I'm praying so that I can be available for you to use my life any way you want. But we pray with an evil desire, saying, God, I don't like this stuff in my life, so would you change that and change them and give me this, because that's the life I want. And he said, when we're looking at that, we're looking at it through our lens, saying this is the life I want, that's selfish, and that's equated with evil desires. So he calls us adulteresses. And he's, you know, you got to remember, James is Jewish, right? He's, he's a full-blown Jew, just like Jesus was a full-blown Jew. And, and so he's looking and emerging this new faith as it comes out. And the constant picture in the Old Testament that gets translated to the New Testament is that, the, that God is the groom and the people of God are his bride. And they're married to one another. And when he looks at them, he says, this is what you're doing. When it comes to your spiritual marriage to God, you're unfaithful. 
you're committing adultery. And the way you're doing that is that you're friends with the world, and because of that, you can't be a friend of God. Notice what he says here, anyone who is friends with the world, right, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility towards God, and that whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. It's not might or could be or whatever. So what he's saying is that friendship with the world, doing life about us, in terms of friendship with God, making life about God, that those two things are mutually exclusive. They don't fit together. There, there, there isn't a way to, to create an Oreo cookie out of those. Where you get, you know, the, there isn't a way to merge those. They are mutually exclusive. And when you and I choose to say, you know what, life really has to be about me instead of about God, he says you are unfaithful to the spiritual marriage you have to God. And it just shatters the relationship, Right? I told you this was dense. It's heavy stuff, right? I know somebody said, man, you know, I'll, I'll just leave with the miserable morning and weep stuff. I'll be done, right? You know, go move on. And so he said, and so there's this dilemma going on, whether it's our spirit that's, you know, inside of us, our human spirit that's kind of jealous to be like everybody else and wants what the world seems, whatever, or, or whether it's God's spirit within us that's just jealous for us to be faithful to the marriage covenant we have with God, that kind of thing. It's just going on. So, he stops, and, and, and so we have this really awful picture of where we're at in our relationships. That when we make life about us, our relationships are going to be full of conflict. And then we hit verse 6. He says, but, but, there's a greater grace. Yes, this is a massive problem, but guess what? It's not too big for God to fix. There's a greater grace. There is a provision, and this is what it's going to take. We've got to come to God in humility. We have to come to God in humility. So he says, so this is what you're going to do there. Therefore, this is what you're going to do. You're going to submit to God. So what he's really saying, submit to God or resist and resist the devil, right? He's saying every single day when you get up, we, we have a choice to make. We can either open the door to God or we can open the door to the evil one. Can't open both doors at the same time, right? So if we open the door to the world's way, to friendship with the world, to, to say, you know, then, then we're closing the door. And he said, this is what I want you to do. When you get up in the morning, I want you to open up the door to God. I want you to break down the wall so the opening's evenly. I want you to take off all your armor and fully expose yourself to God. But when it comes to the evil one, I want you to keep the door shut and I want you to stand extra guard and resist him. And part of the imagery that, that James has in here, this coming out of the temptation of Jesus, was that, that this idea that if, you know what, if we resist the devil, he has no power over if our will does not give him a foothold, then he can't really do anything to us. We have in our grasp, as a part of God's greater grace, the ability to resist the evil one. Now, it doesn't mean he doesn't have power. doesn't mean he's... But we, are, we, we have this ability to stand guard against him. And like Jesus in his temptations, we can emerge at the end of the 40 days victorious gets into some deeper theological things in there about whether we can actually. So he says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, 
and he'll flee from you. And then he backs up and says, let's say that a different way. He says, draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What a great promise, right? Not might, could, get around to, or whatever. He says, you draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Well, boy, how do I do that? And, and, the, and James' Jewishness comes out. He goes back and he grabs the law and he grabs the prophets. He says, cleanse your hands, which is what they did all the time as a part of their worship of God, right? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. And he says, purify your hearts. That's the prophetic message. God just doesn't want your, your hand washing. God wants you to have a heart that's for him. He says, so you got to get over being double-minded, right? And and double-minded, again, is a really rich term. Let me try to break it down in terms that I can understand. And maybe if, it, it, you know, if I can understand it, you definitely can understand it because you guys are all a lot brighter than I am. But here's, here's what he said. When, when we're, devil, we're double-minded, the way I look at it is that we want the favor of God, but we don't want the faithfulness to God that goes with it. We want God to bless us but we don't have to want to do it God's way, right? I want God to bless me and to forgive me and have this deny me, but I don't want to forgive other people, right? Because they're jerks, right? I don't want to have to forgive them. Or, or, you know what, I want God to bless me and give me lots, but I, I don't want to have to be generous with other people, right? I want God to serve my needs, but I don't want to have to serve other people, right? You know, and, and the list just goes on, and we have this idea where we, we want the favor of God, but we don't want the faithfulness of God. We want God to give us our cake, but we want to go out and eat the world's cake, right? And, and, and he said, when you're doing that, you, you can't come to God. When you come to God, you've got to not only be ready to change your behavior, you've got to be able to change, ready to change your heart. You've got to draw near to God with clean hands and a pure heart. So he said, this is what you've got to do. Don't minimize this issue. I, I want you to take all the temporal stuff that gives you laughter and joy, and, and you need to see those things in perspective. Those things aren't going to last. And I want you to look at your scenario where you stand right now as the people who are at fighting with each other because you're, you're unsettled before God. And I want you to, to, to be miserable and mourn and weep. I want you to really be burdened by where you're, where you're at, right? Use our language. I want you to get sick enough that you're ready to go see the doctor, Right? How many of you got people in your household that's like, you know, I'm okay, I don't need to go. You know, I'm, I'm, you know, and, then, and then when they're dead and, and you know, and, and passed out, whatever, and you got to take them out. You know, that, that's where a lot of us are, right? You know, well, it hurts, you know, but I only go if it really hurts, right? And he said, I want you to get to a place where you know it really hurts so that you turn back to God. Because this is what God's willing to do when you turn back in humility. Those that joy and laughter you gave up, he's going to give you a joy and a laughter. He's going to exalt you with a joy and a laughter that's not going to end. It's just going to go on and on. So we, and at this point in time in our text, it seems that James kind of switches a gear a little bit in verse 11. And he says, well, all right, let's go back to this quarrels and, and fighting. And the way that it's coming out in your thing is that you guys are just being really critical I mean, you're, you're just looking at it and you're seeing what you can nitpick and what's wrong with people, right? And you're just picking away at it all the time. And, and, 
And, and the imagery he uses is this. When you're doing that, what you're doing is you're making yourself the lawgiver. You're making yourself a rival with God, and you're always going to lose that battle. And, and here's, this, here's this thought pattern through 11 and 12, right? Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged. When you're criticizing other people, you're saying, that's a stupid law. So I'm going to set it aside. I'm going to make myself the, the lawgiver now. And I'm going to say, pointing out the speck in everybody else's eyes is far more important than seeing the log of my own. So that's the new rule. And then there's going to come a time, because you're, and you're just spitting on what God has said, right? And that's, that's, what he, that's James's idea. You're just desecrating the judge not lest you be judged. You're just kicking that out the door saying, that's stupid, idiotic, whatever. I'm way smarter than God in this part, so here's the new law. I'm going to make sure everybody else knows how they can be more perfect than they are. Right? And so, and you're just going to go after it, and guess what? The day's going to come when the real lawgiver is going to show up, and guess which law is going to work? <laughs> the lawgiver, who's God, and then you're going to be judged by that law, and it's not going to be pretty. And then he returns to his word of hope again. So humble yourself before God so that you can be lifted up. Heavy stuff, right? I know a lot of you are depressed already. That's okay. All right. Let's try to unpack this just a little bit, right? Let's just take all these heavy ingredients and get out the knife and fork and cut it down into some manageable bite-sized pieces that you and I can work on. Because again, we, we, our, our, my philosophy is that you know, God matters to our everyday lives, and so we need to know how to take this and transfer it to what we're going to do this afternoon with our families, what we're going to do tomorrow in the workplace, what we're going to do is we're cutting our grass in our neighborhood tomorrow afternoon, hopefully it won't be raining, or while you're building your ark so you're ready for the flood, whatever it is, that you know what you're supposed to be doing. So let's, just a few things I, I really want you to, to, to pull away from this. These are some things that, that, that may, may be overly simple, but they're really powerful. The very first thing that you need to see is that there is an undeniable connection between your conflict with other people and your inner conflict. Now, let me, let me back off of that just a little bit. The scripture says, as much as it depends upon you, be at peace with all men. And it is possible that you can have broken relationships, but it's really not your fault, right? But, so with that being said, you know, if we are really in a place where all of this has been applied and we've humbly come to God and whatever, and we're really ready to be the people who reconcile and restore and etc., then, then we may be at peace with all men. But what he's saying, by and large, the reason we're in conflict with other people it's because we have inner conflict. And you've heard the phrase before, it says, you know, hurt people, hurt people. You ever heard that phrase before? And, and, and I'd add to that, say, if you're in conflict, it's because you have inner conflict. And what he says here is that that inner conflict is this, is that you haven't really decided whose friend you're going to be yet. You're, 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 you're wanting a life that they can't give to you, and because of that, you are frustrated with them. They don't meet your expectations. Life's not happening the way you want it. And that can take place in lots of different ways, from the, from the way they hand you your coffee cup to whether or not they texted you before while, when they were going to be late, right on down the line to things that are far more significant. It can be really powerful stuff. 
Second truth I really want you to see in this is that James undeniably, I think James intentionally reveals to us that the healthier of our relationship with God, the healthier our relationships are going to be with one another. He looks at all the quarrels and fights and that kind of stuff and says, because you haven't made up your mind on the inside whose friend you're going to be, and because of that, you just have this war that's going on, and if you want to resolve it, what you need to do is draw near to God. And as you draw near to God, you're going to have healthier relationships. So let me try to illustrate that just a little bit. So this afternoon, I'm supposed to, I'm going to be done. I am going to be doing this wedding. Rain or shine, we're going to be doing this wedding this afternoon at 4 o'clock. So they really would like to do it outside and that kind of thing, but we'll see what happens, right? It's raining. And, and one of the things I, as I do pre-marriage counseling with them, one of the things I hammer on over and over again is the idea of being a God-centered spouse. So let me apply that personally. Who I am as the husband in my relationship with Christina the way I perform that role, the way I live it out, really doesn't have anything to do with the way she's doing her relationship with me. It has to do with my relationship with God. So when I think about the obligation I have before God, because I'm in a spiritual marriage with him as well, right? Adulteresses. That he says, this is what I ask of you. No matter what she's doing, I want you to love her as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And I want your agenda in that relationship to be that she's going to be in a position where she can be presented to me without any stain or wrinkle or blemish, which is a prayer that gets more fervent on your lips the older you get and you look more and more in the mirror, right? But it's, it's in a spiritual sense, right? And so if I'm saying, all right, listen, if you want me to be the husband you want me to be, then you better just shape up and start being the wife you're supposed to be. How do you think that relationship's going to go? Any takers? Right? But what he's saying is, in, in this context, the husband I'm supposed to be doesn't have anything to do with who she is. It has to do with my relationship with God. Now, James is using that same principle here, saying the healthier your relationship is with God, you're going to be a different person in all your relationships that are in your life. And you can be a God-centered person. So that when you relate to the people who are around you, whether it's your spouse or your children or your parents or your siblings or your neighbors or your colleagues or your customers or whatever it is, when you're relating to them, you can be doing so out of a position of peace and strength and contentment, and you can have the resources of God to be forgiving and gracious and compassionate and all those kinds of things, because you're a God-centered person, and that transforms all of your relationships. So... James holds up for us. Again, one of the reasons why you have outer conflict is because there's inner conflict. And a way to change that is that you have to change the inside. The healthier your relationship is with God, the healthier your relationship will be with everybody around you. I wonder why if that's because that's why the first commandment is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Because all the rest of this stuff gets a whole lot easier when that's going on, right? Here's a a third takeaway. So we got... The connection between outer and inner conflict and the fact that, that the stronger our relationship with God, the, more, the, the better our relationships will be, the healthier our relationships will be with everybody else. The third truth I really want you to get is that this is what it takes to resolve the inner conflict. You really have to decide whose friend you're going to be. 
You really have to decide whose friend you're going to be. And you can't have your cake and eat it too. If you're going to try to do life the world's way, and that's the way you really want it, I want to make life about me, you're never going to be the friend of God. And, it, and, and you have to make life about God and about being the person God wants you to be and having your life have the impact God wants it to be. And you make the contribution to this planet that God wants you to make. If it's about God, it's not going to be about you. And if it's about you, it's not going to be about God. And the way to resolve the conflict that's going on on the inside is to choose whose friend you're going to be. And now, I am astute enough. I mean, I, I know, you know, I, I understand that's a whole lot easier said than done. And that's why we need each other in this journey and prayer and all these other kinds of things. But if we are asking God with right motives, God will give back to us. And this leads me to my last point. As, <laughs> as difficult as this has been, the, James wants, he just, in lots of different ways, he highlights this. There is a way back to that place. Right? There is a way back to God. But there is a greater grace. Humble yourself. He will exalt you. Draw near, and he will draw near to you. Right? It's just, there is, a, wherever you are at, there is a way for you back to God. Now, he's pointed out some, way, some pieces of that, right? It's going to take drawing near. It's going to take submitting. It's going to take humble, humility. It's going to take cleansing. We have to change our behavior. It's going to take a purification of our hearts. We have to be open to being different people, having a different character, all these stuff. But there is a way back because Jesus walked out of the grave alive. And so those are the four great truths that I take away. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff in here, and, and, I, and I'm not needing to say that, but when you and I look at it, we need to be honest enough to say that one of the reasons we're fighting with everybody else is because inside we're fighting with God. And if we get healthier with him, stuff on the outside is going to begin to change. may not be perfect, but it's going to begin to change. And that stands with us deciding who's going to be our friend, who, whose friend we're going to be, the world's or we're going to be God's. And no matter where you stand in that journey, there is a way back to being the friend of God. And if we will humble ourselves before him, he will exalt us. And that's really my invitation to you today. I, I can't imagine any of you sitting in this room today say, I want to have the worst relationships of anybody in the world. I want every relationship in my life just to be extremely painful. Right? Anybody? I mean, we, we, the thing that gives us the greatest joy in life is great relationships. And guess what? God says, that's part of what I want to give you too. Just be my friend. Don't be the world's friend. Humble yourself, and I'll exalt you. And that laughter and joy will come back. Let's pray for just a minute. As I said when we began, before I offer up our prayer to, to God, just but with just our heads kind of bowed and our eyes closed, that just stillness that comes with that. You know, I 
As I said, there's a lot of stuff in this passage of Scripture. My deep theological word for some incredible truths of God. And those aren't easily made. The decisions to process those into our lives are not simple things. And it's a journey. Some of you, you, you need to spend some time processing that today. That, that you can look around your life and you can see there's many things, many relationships that could be better in your life. And, and, and I want to commit you, I want to invite you to commit to that today, to having those better relationships and to invite somebody to pray with you. There's going to be folks here at the, at the front of the service afterwards for you just to pray with. And, and you, know, you can always flag down me or somebody else who's, who's, uh, you have confidence in spiritually and just find a room to pray in. And, and we'll even let you take coffee with you into those rooms, that kind of stuff. Just, but just be connected with God and, and cement that decision today to say, you know what? I've, I've been choosing the world as my friend way too much. And I want to really commit to choose God and all that comes from that. And today, in the name of Jesus, the one who walked out of the grave alive, I invite you to humble yourself by placing your faith in him as your Savior and Lord, experiencing the forgiveness that comes and launching that journey of having an eternal, healthy relationship with God through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we are broken people. We should mourn and weep and be miserable. But Father, we are thankful that there's a greater grace. And it flows out of the one who walked out of the grave alive to us. And today we seek to live in that grace. And with the best motives that we have in our hearts. We don't ask from evil desires, but we ask from pure desires. God, just pour that grace into our lives and let it be greater than any challenge that we have in walking with you. And then we pray in the name of the one who walked out of the grave alive, the one who commanded us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. In the name of the one who challenged us to love one another, the one who commissioned us to care about people and to go find them. Father, we pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.